You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Ayn Rand's Ideas and Introduction by Aaron Smith. Who, who here has read a book by Ayn Rand? One, at least one. Okay, so far none. Who hasn't read a book by Ayn Rand yet? Other than the camera guy. <laughs> okay, oh, so we have, okay, we have a, number, a few. Okay. Um, because, I ask this because I think what draws most people here is there's a real interest in Ayn Rand. And it's, I mean, she's most popular, she's most well-known in the United States, of course, but she's starting to become more well-known outside of the U.S. and in Europe. Um, and so I thought I'd say just a few things about, about Rand for some of the people who are newer uh, to her work and to who she is. Um, so she, Ayn Rand is a Russian-born American novelist. Uh, she, her, her first two novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, were uh, bestsellers in the United States, and so she became famous as a novelist. Uh, and then after the publication of Atlas Shrugged, this is what, 1957, uh, she turned to writing philosophical essays and became a kind of a, a significant public figure in terms of a public intellectual so she was interviewed on radio programs, TV, TV programs. Uh, she was lecturing on university campuses uh, and at various kind of intellectual forums and so on. So she kind of built a, uh, what would you say? Um, she came out as a kind of a new, fresh, original, but also controversial public figure and a new kind of voice in the culture. And. So she, she died around 19, no, she died in 1982, uh, happily, as evidence of the people here, her ideas live on, uh, her books, she sold what, something like 37 million copies, I think, of her books have been sold, so uh, she, has, she has a real appeal to many people. Um, but she's not universally adored, and I think we, with the chuckles here, I think we know that. Um, so there's, I think, significant, I wanted to say opposition uh, to her ideas. I guess I can say that, opposition. I think she faces a lot of, I think, lack of knowledge or lack of understanding of what her ideas are. I think it's uh, often less the case that people understand her ideas and think it's wrong, but they're often either misinformed about it or they don't know much about it, or in many cases, and I think this is important. In many cases, they hear some of the things that she stands for, and people often will reject it outright. Um, and I think that's because of what makes her so controversial. And I think what makes her controversial is that she's challenging all kinds of received wisdom, all kinds of things, all kinds of ideas that we've been taught to accept, these things that we grow up with and pretty much take for granted as true, and in many cases, she's telling you that these ideas are actually false. And many of the things you've been taught to, uh, taught to believe, uh, taught to think of as, as your basic framework, is that this is true, and she's telling you this is false, in many cases. And she's saying things that nobody else is saying. So she's saying that, she, she tells you that selfishness which everyone knows is evil, everyone knows it's wrong, everyone knows you shouldn't be a selfish person, she's telling you this is actually good, that selfishness is good, 
In fact, it's the proper orientation of a moral life. Who else is saying that? Where else have you heard that? Anywhere? So that's unique. She's telling you that altruism, the kind of morality of ser selfless service to others and so on and self-sacrifice, which people uh, kind of praise as a kind of a noble, uh, the kind of a noble way of thinking about morality. She's telling you that it's actually evil. Who tells you that alt altruism is evil? There's one person who I heard it. Okay, Nietzsche says that. Um, but again, this makes her very distinctive. She's telling you that your highest moral purpose in life is not saving the wilderness or trying to eliminate global poverty or something like that. It's the achievement of your own personal happiness as an end in itself. How many of you have been taught how many of you have been taught to think of the pursuit of your own personal happiness as a moral endeavor, as a moral quest? Okay, one person. Okay, good. <laughs> I want to meet your parents. Um, because I, I mean something like the pursuit of happiness is often taken as how many of your parents want you to be happy? Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, who doesn't want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy. Parents want to say, honey, I want you to be happy, and so on. But it's usually not thought, and almost rarely thought of, as a moral quest. And I think this is something that really struck me the first time I read Ayn Rand. I think I was 19. I read The Fountainhead. And this was at a time in my life where I was, what, I was quite independent-minded. I was convinced that being independent-minded is a really important thing. You know, I'm going to go my own way in life and not let other people sort of dictate what I'm going to do. Early on, I think years ago, I had abandoned religion, but I was concerned about being good, but I didn't exactly have any alternative moral system or moral theory. I just had my own judgment. Um, and when I read The Fountainhead, I get this character, Howard Rourke. He's the protagonist in the story. And he takes his life and his happiness, his creative goals, his work, with a kind of reverence and devotion that astounded me. Like I, and it made me think, wow, I'm not taking my life seriously. Like This is what it looks like to take your life seriously, to take your happiness seriously, to take your work seriously, not just, you know, got to get a job, got to pay the rent, but to take it as, I'm choosing a creative goal in my life, something I want to build, something I want to develop, something that's very me. Um, and to take that with this real seriousness and a kind of a devotion, and I, that really struck me. Like, I hadn't thought about my life that way before. Um, I thought I was taking it seriously. I guess I never thought about it exactly. I knew I wanted to be happy. And I knew I wanted to choose some career or something that I thought I would enjoy rather than this is going to make me, you know, big bucks or this, uh, people expect this of me or this will help other people. I, I, I never thought in those terms. Um, and this is, it, it brings out something about the way Ayn Rand thinks about morality. Um, because many of the time, I mean, most, most of the way in which we are taught to think about morality is that it's about what you do for others. 
and her focus on morality is very much on an individual and in the, in the achievement of his own life and his own happiness. It's very much focused on you, on you as an individual and what you can make of yourself and what you can make of your life. Uh, and so that really changed the way I thought about a number of things and, and supplemented a lot of what I discovered myself. By the time I discovered uh, Atlas Shrugged, I just immediately read that afterward. And that's like a really stepping back. And then the first, for the first time, I started to feel like I have a worldview, like a perspective on the world I live in, on human nature, on the nature of the good, on a just society. At that point, I just quit school, quit university. Like I read this and I realized I, there's so many answers that she's giving to questions I had never thought to ask and which now seem really pressing. And I thought, I can't keep putting one foot in front of the other, moving forward towards sort of a no goal. I was studying French. I didn't know why I was studying French. I liked it, that's all. I had no thought of a career or a life. When you're 18, do you think of a life? Maybe you do. I didn't. <laughs> you're not. I hope that's good for you. I didn't think of a life. Like, like long range, you know, what, do I, what kind of a person do I want to be? What kind of life do I want to develop and build? Just, just never thought in those terms. Uh, and so one of the things that Ayn Rand really taught me is that to take my own life seriously, to take my happiness seriously, and not, and not in a conventional way, but treat it as a moral quest, um, as a profoundly moral quest. Uh, and I, that, I, I feel like I have a real debt to, to Rand for that. And it's not just, oh, and well, the other thing I was going to mention before, but it's one of the other radical things that she tells you um, is that capitalism, which everybody denounces as immoral, everybody knows it's immoral, right, um, is the only moral social system uh, that men have ever devised. In fact, it's a moral ideal, a moral pinnacle that we've still not yet to fully reached. Again, this is, this is stuff I had never heard, and I, I, don't hear any, I, I don't hear voices in the culture praising capitalism. How many of you have heard of people praising capitalism as an ideal from a moral perspective? Many people will talk about it as, well, it's the best system economically and for wealth generation and things like that, but it's ideal from a moral perspective. Again, this is a case in which she's unique, distinctive. And it's not just that she's offering a few radical ideas that sort of jar you and the shock and awe, you know, but she's offering a whole systematic worldview. It's a, it's a new philosophy. And one of the sad things I think about today is we don't really have philosophies. So when you would, if you were to go back to when these buildings, these, the big buildings on the hill uh, were, uh, were new, you had philosophies. You, had, you could be a Platonist. You would go study at Plato's Academy. Because Platonism, there was Aristotelianism. This is a whole worldview. Uh, there was Stoicism, Epicureanism, and others, lesser known to most people. Um, but there were schools of philosophy where you had, you had a whole worldview. It's a view about the nature of reality 
how to reach knowledge, what counts the standard for truth and, and what counts as certainty about what the nature of a good person is. How do you draw a distinction between good and evil, right and wrong, and what counts as a just society? And they try to integrate this into a view that all makes sense. It interrelates. Um, I don't think you really have that nowadays in, in, in philosophy. You have people doing philosophy, but the, the idea that you have an integrated systematic worldview is sort of um, has sort of disappeared. But this is one of the respects in which Ayn Rand is, is going, what was it going back to? Maybe that's not quite right way to put it, but um, she's re reviving a more systematic approach to philosophy. So she's not just doing politics, she's not just doing ethics. Um, she's doing philosophy. Now, I've said that Ayn Rand is challenging all sorts of received wisdom. And one of, this way, one of the ways this shows up is that she challenges a lot of alternatives that we're, we're usually taught to think in. And she thinks they're false alternatives. So a false, an alternative, a false alternative is the idea where you have to choose, you're told you have to choose between A and B. And these are your options. You're either one or the other. So you can't have both. Um, and in many cases what Ayn Rand is saying, yeah, you're taught to think like that, but these are not your options. And usually saying both of these are bad, and that there's a third way, there's another way. Uh, so I want to I introduce some of what's distinctive about Ayn Rand's thought by looking at a few of these false alternatives, or what she thinks are false alternatives, and looking at what she thinks is a new way of looking at the issue. So let's take one that's related to ethics, because we have a number of talks that are related to ethics that this relates to. And tell me whether you recognize this. You can either be selfish or you can be moral. So if you're a selfish person, you're not moral. And if you're a moral person, you're not a selfish person, right? Am I right? Am I right? <laughs> yes, that's right. I, it's, it's, it's one or the other. I think that's how we're definitely taught to think. Because we're taught to think that selfishness is the opposite of morality. In fact, morality exists, and you'll find many professors telling you this. Morality exists because people are selfish, or they have a tendency to be selfish, or they are want to be selfish. And what you invent morality to curb, stop, prevent, cordon off people's selfishness. So they're really thought to be like exclusive. And then we're taught that morality is all, is, is all about being unselfish. It's about placing the interests of others above yourself. It's about making sacrifices for other people. It's about placing others first. Whether we fully agree with that perspective as we grow up is a different issue. But we're not really taught to think, we're not given a better alternative. So we may decide individually, it's, yeah, I was taught that growing up. I'll sacrifice sometimes, but not all the time. I mean, I'm not going to be a Mother Teresa, right? I'm not going to just completely sacrifice for other people and live a life like that. Who wants that? I don't want that. But then you're often, it, one of the results is you're often not self-confident, morally self-confident, and just pursuing your own interest. I mean, what happens if you tell people? 
I'm not going to sacrifice for other people. I'm going to pursue my own interests. What do they immediately think? What do they immediately think you're going to do? Well, you don't care about other people, obviously. You're just going to do what you feel like, no matter what its effect on other people. In short, you're going to sacrifice other people for your own ends. And that's not really too surprising. I mean, if you think about what, your, what the conventional image of a selfish person is, right? It's the kind of jerk that cuts you off on the highway to save two seconds to get where he's going. Somebody who pushes you out of the way to get in line. The criminal who grabs other people's stuff because he wants it. I mean, this is often the conventional perspective. That's a selfish person. You want to be that person? Anybody want to be that person? I don't want to be that person. I don't respect somebody like that. So it's not surprising that people have that sort of view. Oh, sorry. But uh, that's partly because that's, how we're, that's the only way we're really taught to think of selfishness. Has anyone heard it outside of Ayn Rand? Heard people talking about selfishness as, 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 as a good thing? Ye okay, we will talk about, what is it, Nick McKinney Ethics Book 9, Chapter 9? Uh, we'll deal with that later. We're going to have a panel where we're going to discuss uh, Aristotle and Ayn Rand, and that is a very interesting aspect of Aristotle's thought, but we will come back to that. Uh, okay, other than him, I think the answer is probably no. So the alternative that we seem to be faced with is you either sacrifice other people to get what you want, or you sacrifice yourself for the sake of morality. And Ayn Rand asks, wait a second, why are these your choices? Why is our choice who gets sacrificed to whom? As if the necessity of someone's sacrifice is taken for granted, someone's got to get sacrificed. It's either I sacrifice myself to you or I'll sacrifice yourself to my goals. Why is sacrifice needed? And she says this is a false alternative. She says the pursuit of your, your self-interest doesn't require sacrifice of anyone to anyone. A moral person neither sacrifices his own interests for others, nor does he sacrifice other people to, to reach his own interests, or to get what he wants. And what she's offering, and this is really, I think, something new, is she's offering a non-sacrificial approach to life. A selfishness without victims. A morality of profit, not loss. But to really see this as a genuine alternative and to see, to see that this is a real way in which you could think about morality, which you could think about a real approach to life that's not just a set of words on paper. You need a rational conception of what your interests are. And I think one of the, re one of the sad things about this sort of stunted perspective perspective on what self-interest is, it's self-interest as the kind of the crook who goes after stuff and takes stuff, is that once we decide, well, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to live a self-sacrificial life, I want to pursue my own interests, we become children, what, in effect, like, oh, well, <laughs> what are my interests? Because you're not really taught to think hard about what is actually in my interest? What is in my advantage across the course of a life? 
Like, what kind of values should I pursue if I want to be a successful person in life? What are the values I should pursue? What virtues should I develop? Across a long-term perspective, not just how do I get something today. Uh, and that's a serious, that's a serious uh, bit of thinking to do. And we're not, we're not taught to think in those terms, so partly it's often, if, like if somebody says, if you told everybody, be selfish, everybody go out there and be selfish, go ahead, you guys can get up and go, go, go be selfish, you might just sort of pause a little bit, like, well, I'm, okay, I don't, well, what does that mean, does that mean go have a nice meal, does it mean, like, I don't exactly know what that means, do something I want, and it, you, you need much more than just simply, so when Rand is advocating selfishness, this is a starting point. It's just an opener. It says, orient yourself toward, orient yourself in life to you. You should be the beneficiary of your actions. And don't make it, it's everything about other people. It should be about you. But that doesn't tell you what to do. That doesn't give you the content of morality. That doesn't tell you here are all your values and virtues and here's a set and here's how to practice them. And that's a whole, that's moral philosophy. That's a whole endeavor. So just be selfish doesn't give you a whole lot. But in our culture, I think it gives you something important. So what we need, to, uh, what Ayn Rand calls, what we need is what she calls a, a morality of rational self-interest. Uh, and this is the topic of uh, Tara Smith's talk today. So Tara's here uh, in the audience. She's going to be speaking on uh, Rand's view of what rational selfishness is. But we also need to see why self-sacrifice is not just unnecessary to a moral life, but actually incompatible with a moral life. That self-sacrifice is incompatible with a moral life, antagonistic to it. Um, and uh, this is what Ankar Gante is going to be discussing right after my talk. I want to say something briefly about a major political implication of Rand's ethics, this approach to like a non-sacrificial life. If it's immoral to sacrifice others for your own ends, then a moral society has to ensure that people aren't forced to sacrifice for others. I mean, if it's true that it's, 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 it's wrong, it's not moral to sacrifice uh, uh, to sacrifice other people for your own ends, then a moral society has to ensure that people aren't forced to sacrifice for others. Whether it's for the state or for society or for the poor or for the common good. A moral society is one where individuals' lives and resources are not treated as material for society's use and disposal. It's one in which the government's role is restricted to that of securing and protecting an individual's rights. In other words, it's a system known as capitalism, which Ayn Rand regarded as the only moral social system because it's the only, so moral, it's the only social system that upholds an individual's right to live for his own sake, by his own judgment, and for his own profit. Um, and uh, Greg Salmieri is going to be saying a lot more about capitalism and the morality of capitalism uh, this afternoon later on. And Nikos, who introduced me here, he's going to be talking a lot about the, uh, the, the hatred for capitalism, the kind of anti-capitalist mentality, uh, and its relationship of anti-capitalism to anti-Americanism. 
And I'll just say one more thing about the cap, uh, about capitalism. Um, if you look at, go through a number of dictionaries, online dictionaries, doesn't matter what it is, uh, and look up what capitalism is. Uh, note down a few of them, grab, see what they have in common and so on. And look at how Ayn Rand defines capitalism. And it's interestingly different. Maybe because she's a philosopher, maybe she, because she, she has a view about what is essential to capitalism. Um, and she says, capitalism is the system uh, based on the principle of individual rights. You won't find that in any dictionary in which all property is privately owned. So you get the idea about property being privately owned, you'll see that. Uh, but you won't get a definition of capitalism from the perspective of it's the system based on the principle of individual rights. And I think she thinks that is the essential. Um, and this is another thing that I think makes her unique, is that I think she's, I think this is fair to say, I think she's the only philosopher that upholds, or that she, she holds that every individual has the right to exist for his own sake. I don't know that anybody, I don't know any philosophers that have the view. You have the right, the moral right, to live for your own sake, by your own judgment, for your own profit. <clears throat> if people accepted that alone, I think that would be such, that would be such a game changer. Because then you can't say, oh, I don't live for others? You can't just grab my stuff because you think somebody needs it? Like, my life is mine? What I earn is mine. The direction in my life, the values I choose, the <laughs> this is my choice, not his, not hers, not yours to make for me. But Ayn Rand will tell you that. So I want to turn to another common alternative, moving away from ethics. Uh, that Ayn Rand thinks is a false alternative. This is one more related to metaphysics about the nature of reality, um, including human nature. Are you going to believe in free will? Or are you going to be scientific? I hadn't discovered this until I got to university, but it's all over the universities. And it's... it's I'm sympathetic to being pulled into this as these are your alternatives. It's either free will or it's science, and it's reason and science and so on. Uh, I think partly because of the way in which, uh, <clears throat> well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the alternative is either you're gonna side with reason and science, in which case you think of the world entirely in terms of matter in motion, uh, a world in which every event follows inexorably from a preceding chain of events. So for there to be free will, it seems like you'd need some kind of supernatural soul or something with special powers that, it, like it's not governed by natural law or the laws of nature. Uh, it has some sort of special powers that exempt it from the laws of nature. It has its own rules somehow and its own special powers. But that just sounds like a bunch of sort of, well, depends how disparaging I want to put that. It sounds like some sort of religious view, some sort of supernaturalistic sort of view. Um, so if you're gonna be scientific, you're gonna be rational. 
you got to throw out free will. Because being scientific, being rational, it means thinking of the world in terms of uh, it's, this is just matter in motion, one event follows inexorably from the others, cause and effect, and so on. Um, but if you accept the idea of free will, and you have the idea that I exercise some control over my thinking, I exercise some control over my choices, my values, my character, I can shape my character uh, and, and direct the course of my life. If you accept that, then it seems to be, okay, that's good, that sounds good. But then it seems like you're also saddled with some view like, yeah, but now you're sort of siding with the sort of mystical mysticism and magic side. Um, because then how do you explain how this all works? And this is another case where Ayn Rand says this is a false alternative. You don't have to choose between reason and science and free will. Because they're not incompatible. Ayn Rand is fully on the side of reason, science, nature, cause and effect, as against supernaturalism and uncaused events and so on. But in contrast to, the, uh, to a kind of religious worldview, she holds that there's no supernatural dimension. Everything functions according to cause and effect. Things behave the way they do because of what they are. They have certain features, certain properties, certain characteristics, and that explains why they act the way they do. Tomatoes can't sing. Men can't walk across the water. There are no miracles. That's it. But she's also fully on the side of reason. Uh, in terms of rejecting mysticism and faith, any kind of just knowing. Uh, and again, this will be another talk. Uh, I think it's tomorrow. Uh, Tara Smith will be talking again about uh, reason and faith and why these have very different methods, so to speak, and, and very different results. But she's also on the side of free will. So objectivism maintains that free will is not some kind of magic power possessed by some supernatural soul. It's a natural biological capacity of certain living organisms at a certain degree of complexity. It's a, it's a natural biological capacity. It's your power of choice, and it's a causal power. It's not anti-causal, a-causal, just happens. It's a causal power to initiate and direct action, fundamentally cognitive actions. And she puts it, it's a choice to think or not to think, to engage your, your cognitive faculties or to, or to choose not to do so. And I think it, it's particularly important, I think, this view about free will. I mean, it gets technical and it's a, it, it can be complicated. But it's important because it's of it, the whole way in which it shapes the way you think about yourself. If you really thought, I literally am just a product of various nature and nurture and antecedent causes and so on, it's, it's really like you have no control over your life. You have no control over your thinking. You have no control over your judgment. You have no control over what you value. You have no ability to improve your life if your life gets improved somehow. It's not you that's responsible. It's not you that shaped it. It's you really feel like, I think that's, I think it's really dis, dis, disorienting if you really thought that that is just what I am. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why this is important is uh, happiness takes work. Happiness takes a lot of thinking about what you want and a lot of, um, am I on the right path? Am I going where I should? Maybe I should change directions. And if you really feel like none of this is up to me, I think this is a very good disempowering perspective. And if you, you look at how much, I think this will come out in Tal Sfani's talk on happiness, but you start to see just how much thinking goes into thinking about what do I want in life? Uh, 
how do I sort out what I value? And do I, I, I tell myself I value that, but do I, really, do I really take that seriously in my life? And am I being honest with myself about what I want? There's so much thinking that goes into that. Um, I think it's, it's, it's very valuable to think of yourself as like, I actually am exercising some control and some direction over the course of my life. I can choose my values, I can shape my character. Now this is just a, a way of sort of introducing some, something, about, something distinctive about Rand's view from the perspective of these false alternatives and so on. But again, this is just scratching the surface of a whole philosophy. So I think if you, if you listen to the talks and you think about what's being said in the talks, talk about it, ask questions about it and so on, um, I think you're going to be rewarded by this, what, what's the word? Uh, kind of encounter, I think, with a, with a new and original thinker. So take advantage of the talks, ask questions, talk amongst yourselves, and, come, and also find the speakers. We're around and follow up on things that are of interest to you. Um, so thank you, and uh, I think we have questions. Do people need to go to the mics? Teja, I'm uh, from India but living in Netherlands right now. Uh, my question is that I understood that sacrifice means uh, like a giving up a higher value to the lower one, but is there any justification for the sacrifice like anyway? Is there any just, so okay, thank you. So what he, he was saying that a sacrifice, and he was quoting something that Ayn Rand had said, a sacrifice is that is the, when you give up something that's more important for you, more important to you, for the sake of something that's less important or non-important to you. Uh, and the question was, is it ever proper to do that? Um, I think the question would be, what would, what would you be after? So the, if you reword it, it's, is deliberate personal loss of value? No. I don't know why it would be. I mean, loss means you take a value, something that's important, and you give it up. Um, is cutting off your foot ever a value? That might be. In a certain context, you're caught in a trap, <laughs> or you're sliding off a cliff and you need to do something. But again, that is, you're, 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 you're exchanging one thing, your poor little foot, for your life, your whole body. That's way more important. You can get a prosthetic foot, right? But no. Deliberate personal damage is not a value and, and never can be. There are all sorts of things that people call sacrifice, which are enormous, they're really important values, but they're not sacrifices. So I sacrifice so much to get to where I am today. It's like, I hope you didn't, you know? But often it means um, there were some things that I wanted, but that I, I, I Oh, it seems weird. Say, it almost seems weird to say "forewent," but I think that is grammatical. You forewent. You, you temporarily didn't pursue certain values so that you could pursue something more important. Like I could have just went to the movies, but I, I knew I had to study because I got an exam coming up, and if I if I don't pass this, it's going to be important, and so something's more important. It's not a sacrifice that you didn't get to see the movie. So there are all sorts of. I call that investment. 
you know, because there's a cost to anything you do. If you do A, you're not doing B. And so you think about what do I want in life? Um, what kind of, what do I need to go do? And what, what kind of things do I need to set aside um, or deprioritize? I get one question. Come on, there's nothing, there's, oh, there we go, get it here. I know this philosophy is really easy and everything is crystal clear. I hear you. Can't let you get off that easily. Okay. <laughs> you talk about living long term and making decisions for your life, and yet we only live right now. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Especially as it relates to sacrifice. Like I'm giving up something now and yet I want to live my whole life in a direction that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, think, I think I know what you're saying. So on the one hand, um, you don't live in the future. You're in this room right now, feeling comfortable or uncomfortable, interested or uninterested. This is where you are. You'll, you'll never live anywhere but the immediate moment. And yet, there are a lot of immediate moments ahead of you. <laughs> and you need to think about what are those immediate moments like? What are they going to be like? What do I want them to be like? Where do I want to be? And to, for that, you need to think ahead. You need to think long range. You need to plan ahead now, just like investment. I wish I knew about that when I was a kid. Like, oh, yeah, you just get like a little index fund or something like that. Like, I didn't know anything about that. Um, I'd be better off right now. I'd be in a better position right now. So, but, so the thing is, you do need to plan long range, but you always do live in the now. Um, what you experience is always now. Um, but there, are, there is a way in which you can be too much thinking about long range, as if happiness is that sort of distant goal beyond the hill that it's, you know, no, I mean, ha well, I'll let Tal talk more about happiness, but the whole idea is that you want both um, short-term and long-term pleasures, short-term and long-term goals. You can't hold out till well, when day when I'm 75, maybe uh, I'll get one thing I want, and it's like, no, that's not, or there's a jackpot or something at the end, no. You live life right now and tomorrow and the day after and the day after, and life is in the living. And the whole time, is it's, all, it's not leading up to one point. It's what you want is to be on a path functioning by methods that are methods for successful living and successful achievement of your values. And if you're on that path, you don't have to wait for the far, you know, the thing at the end of the rainbow or something. It's not, it's not like that. You're living your life and, and loving your life as you're moving forward. And, you know, life has its, you know, ups and downs and, and turns and stuff. But you, and sometimes you need to replan. Something can happen in life. You need to, okay, I can't do that anymore. I was going to, I was going to be a basketball player and then I, you, might, you know, my hip, you know, I can't do it anymore. And then you need to reorient. That happens. Um, but yeah, you don't want to live too much in the future such that you don't really live now and you don't really take the, seri the, the present seriously. It's where you are. Oh yeah, I got another question over here. Yep. Yeah, this will be the last question. Um, do, you, do you really think that uh, Ayn Rand's uh, definition of selfishness is not really purely selfishness? Uh, could it be that... 
I'm not talking about effective altruism as she speaks about it, but uh, I'm talking about being selfish is not really as, um, how would I formulate it? Um, it can be at the same time selfish, but selfish in a way that's good not only for you, but someone next to you too. Uh, and it's not actually purely selfish. I think, I think I think I understand what you're asking. So there's yeah. two, two sides of the question. One, do you think, do I think the way she uh, characterizes selfishness is accurate? Yes, because in my understanding, uh, her definition of selfishness is nothing that generally what we think of selfishness. Okay, so I have several things to say that. Uh, and then the other thing was, aren't there cases where you take something that's genuinely selfish, but it benefits other people? And most of the time, my argument is that it is that you think it's selfishness, but it's actually something good for you as you pursue what you desire. And at the same time, it's good for someone next to you. Like it's, uh, yeah. Okay, so let me respond to what I think I get about that question. Um, one, again, again, look up in the dictionary. It will show you what people generally mean by the term selfishness. Um, and it's not, it doesn't look like well, the way Ayn Rand characterized selfishness. But there's a reason why she does two things. One, well, she characterizes it as rational selfishness. So that the perspective on selfishness that she has, she thinks of it as rational selfishness. But going back to the, just the word selfishness, she chose that deliberately. So she's picking a fight on that issue because everybody thinks that selfishness is evil. Everyone thinks it's wrong. And she's telling you this is a virtue. And she, what she's trying to do is she's trying to tap into that and say, the problem isn't the word or the dictionary. The problem is your conceptualization. If what you do is you, what the, what the word selfishness does is it packages together the pursuit of your own interests with evil. And it melds these together. And so that's, the, that's now the tool you use to think about selfish people. That's the word, the concept that you use. It's now when I think of selfishness, I simultaneously think evil. And she's saying, you need to break that association because you can say, this is, this is the pursuit of my, my own interests. The whole question of, is that good or evil? That's not part of the concept. What, 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 what are my interests? Just grab other people's stuff, grab what I can. Is that in my interest? That's an intellectual question. You have to think about that. It's like, well, it's, I have to think about, do I, if, if I lived, lived a life like that, would that be in my interest? Would it be to my advantage? Would it be more damaging to me than helpful? Um, so she's deliberately choosing a word that pe people find provocative because she wants them to break the association of the pursuit of like the pro-self and the evil. Um, and many of the things that we do uh, that are in our interests benefit other people as well. So it's not that you don't have to choose that, well, because you hear this, if all of you people pursue your own interests, it's all dog-eat-dog -dog world, cutthroat, and it's no, it's rationality and hands-off. That's a wonderful world. Um, but one has to have a view about what morality, uh, what, that, what that kind of ethics entails. So I guess I'm getting signs that we're out of time, so I need to say thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.